0: It is disturbingly easy to break your life down into story beats. If you were asked to, it would probably take you a matter of minutes to sift through every experience that you remember, separating what's useful from what's not. And not just that, but you could spin your life into several stories, each with a different set of events, sometimes overlapping but framed in different ways, conveying a different mood and serving a different purpose. The same memory could be a comedic vignette in one story, and a meaningful turning point in another. The absolute crux of one story might not even appear in another. Now imagine spinning stories out of a life you've only heard about in stories. And I know I'm asking you to imagine the entire genre of historical fiction here, but like, bear with me. Not only would you have to choose which moments to include in your retelling but whether to keep the pre-attached framing from a previous retelling. And now, finally, imagine trying to do all of this about a life that was, at the very least, uncommonly eventful, and probably a little bit closer to batshit insane. We're talking violence, political intrigue, and intergenerational incest. But with so much there, and a whole tradition of stories to remix and reframe, how many ways do you think you could spin that? Hello everyone and welcome to The Man, the Myth, the Pumpkin, a podcast where we look at fictionalized versions of the Emperor Claudius' life and ask ourselves, why does this exist? I'm Sophia Saro and thank you for joining me on this weird little academic experiment. We should probably start off with a bit of context. Tiberius Claudius Nero Germanicus, who would later become Tiberius Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, was born in 10 BCE. His father Drusus was the son of the Empress Livia, and his mother Antonia Minor was the niece of the Emperor Augustus. Whereas most Julio-Claudian boys were raised for military and political careers, Claudius was counted out of these career paths from an early age due to his limp, physical tics, and significant hearing loss, as well as the fact that he spoke with a stutter. He was instead trained to be a historian, which would keep him busy and satisfied but out of the public eye. This didn't stop him from seeking political office, though, although his last unsuccessful bid under the reign of Tiberius led him to going into an early retirement and spending a considerable amount of his time gambling. When Caligula ascended to power, he brought his uncle Claudius out of political retirement and appointed him co-consul. And when Caligula was assassinated, his co-consul was a clear contender for his successor. It took a lot of bribes and the merciless execution of some conspirators, but the Julio-Claudian's power was restored as Claudius was declared emperor. Now, a speed run of his reign. Aqueducts were built. Rome conquered Britannia. Claudius put his own wife, Valeria Messalina, to death after she was allegedly plotting to overthrow him. He enforced the use of three new letters of the Latin alphabet. They didn't catch on. And in 54 CE, he died after naming his stepson, Nero, as his political heir. I cannot emphasize this enough. It may be easy to break a life down into story beats, but it is hard to fit 64 years into a matter of seconds. But now that you have my slapdash version of Claudius' life, you're ready for Seneca the Younger's far more thought-out rendition of his afterlife. Let's talk about Apocolokintosis. Apokalokintosis, or the pumpkinification of the divine Claudius, is a satire attributed to Seneca the Younger by Cassius Dio. The title is a portmanteau of apotheosis, the ancient Greek word for the ascension to godhood, and kolokynth, the ancient Greek word for gourd, or as it's often translated now, pumpkin. If you think that's a weird title, scholars agree, and have debated the significance of Claudius turning into a gourd instead of a god for centuries. Compared to whatever the title is supposed to be, the plot is fairly simple. Claudius dies and descends to heaven, where he promptly terrifies Hercules just by showing up. He attempts to smooth-talk the gods into letting him stay in heaven, but when the gods are voting on whether or not he should become a god, Augustus cuts in and tells everyone what a horrible person he was. He's then dragged away by Mercury— They pass Claudius' own funeral on their journey, and for the first time, Claudius, who was just in heaven, actually realizes that he's dead. He's content, though, because people are singing contrived funeral songs that flatter him. He blissfully ignores the fact that the quack lawyers are the only ones who are genuinely upset he's gone. When he and Mercury arrive in the underworld, Claudius rejoices upon seeing so many people that he knew in life. As it turns out, All of these people hate his guts. They put him on trial for killing countless people, literally, as many as there are grains of sand on the seashore, and sentence him to the worst imaginable punishment, which, for a gambling addict, is spending an eternity with a bottomless dice box that won't actually let him throw his dice. Within the last few sentences of the story, Caligula swoops in, claims him, gives him as a gift to Icus who passes him off again to Menander, who uses him as his law clerk. It's a very eventful last few lines. The grand overarching theme here is clear. Everyone hates Claudius. Claudius's grandfather hates Claudius. The gods, after listening to Claudius's grandfather, hate Claudius. The people in the underworld despise Claudius. And within the story, everyone has a well-established reason to do so. At least Hercules has mixed feelings towards him. Unfortunately for Claudius, the mix is between hatred and fear. And Hercules is a special case here, too. Because while some of the gods are willing to give Claudius the benefit of the doubt prior to Augustus's speech, Hercules hates him right from the get-go. To a modern audience, the joke is as obvious as it is unfunny. Someone known for his strength, virility, and nigh invincibility is afraid of somebody who couldn't pose a threat to him if he tried. It's the old lion-afraid-of-a-mouse trope, just as shallow here as it is in any children's cartoon. Or so I thought at first, but when you think of Hercules as the pinnacle of virility, repulsed by the physically disabled and morally deplorable Claudius, things get a bit more interesting. And since we're getting into this, now is the time to mention that the intersection between classical studies and disability studies has been booming lately. Uh, It's a bit late, but we can still give ourselves the obligatory round of applause. Uh, But it's because ability and masculinity were so intertwined in the ancient Roman world that we cannot truly talk about disability in ancient Rome without also talking about gender. We have to add an additional vector here. The Roman bonus is a man in control of his own mind, his own emotions, and ideally the people around him. And one of the ways that he is best able to control the people around him is through the power of speech. Thus, it seems like no coincidence that when Claudius is showing off his rhetorical abilities, spinning Homeric-style verses to explain who he is and where he came from. The goddess Fever cuts him off and tells him to stop talking nonsense. Claudius is exercising the only form of masculine authority he actually can and gets cut off by a female deity who is more powerful than he ever could be. Going back to Hercules, the intersection between masculinity and gender here means that Hercules is shuddering not only at the sight of a disabled person, but at the gaping vacuum standing in place of Roman masculinity. Claudius cannot control the movement of his own head or the way that he walks, and when he attempts to influence others through his speech, he fails at that too. He is a complete failure as a Roman man, and Hercules is horror-struck by the very concept. Once you see this, it's easy to notice that all of the male characters who so much as tolerate Claudius, don't even like him, are those who stand to gain from him. Those who can get him to put himself below them, those he will submit himself to. Now, Mercury, who is already below by default, originally aims to help him out, by which I mean begs Clotho to mercifully end his life. Now, some scholars insist that Mercury, the god of cleverness, actually liking Claudius, must be completely ironic on Seneca's part, but I don't think it's too far fetched that the god of merchants and travelers would approve of the man who commissioned the port at Ostia. It seems like Mercury's followers, at least, might have uh, really appreciated that. Regardless, as soon as Mercury learns that the extent of Claudius' cruelty is greater than he could have imagined, he personally drags him to the lower regions of the underworld by the nape of his neck. No matter what Claudius has done for Mercury's devotees, the god cannot be swayed. Caligula, on the other hand, doesn't even need to be swayed. He actively seeks Claudius out, claiming that Claudius was enslaved under him during life uh, so that he can have control of him back. Now, this flow to Claudius' agency is particularly damning, because being Caligula's co-consul was Claudius' most notable political stint prior to being emperor. And this could easily have been framed as Claudius regaining some measure of control in his life. Obviously, Seneca doesn't want to go that way. That makes the inversion here, portraying it as enslavement, a particularly cruel jab. We also have Menander, a freedman whose control of his own life is undercut by his previous enslavement. I don't have to explain why the Roman emperor being controlled by a freedman would have been seen by the Romans as something so unthinkable it could only appear in satire. And in the living world, where most Romans are celebrating and walking around like free men, now that Claudius is gone, the lowest-ranking lawyers sincerely mourn his death, as the real lawyers, and thus the lawful order of Rome, have reemerged after Claudius has gone. These are the men who benefited from Claudius' corruption, and they are mourning that their days of privilege have now come to an end. So, who is Claudius in this piece? He's out of control both physically and morally. The only people who tolerate him do so not for who he is, but for what he can offer them. He is at his best when serving his social inferiors, disgracing the office of princeps while doing so, and he borders on monstrous when enacting his own desires. He is a failed leader and a failed man. And that raises some questions, doesn't it? So let's go back to our big question here. Why was this written? Because most scholars agree that this was written by Seneca around 54 CE, right at the beginning of Nero's reign. And while the prevailing theory is that Seneca wrote it for Saturnalia, it still doesn't make all that much sense to say, hey, you know that guy who hand-selected our current leader? You know, the one who adopted him, named him as his heir, let him marry his daughter, and overall just gave him a big old stamp of approval? Yeah, that guy was a bloodthirsty lunatic. That really, really casts Nero in a bad light. So something else has to be going on, right? While your guess is really as good as mine, and it's not like any of us can go back to Seneca and ask him what's going on here, I think there are two parts of the story that really illustrate what we're supposed to take away about Nero. So first, remember when Claudius goes down to the underworld and he sees that angry mob? What he initially says upon seeing them is, Pantaphilon plere." Plenty of friends. Everywhere. He has absolutely no self-awareness, allowing Nero to be simultaneously liked by Claudius and completely opposed to Claudius. Nero could have hated Claudius' guts and dreamed of the day that he could rectify everything his great-uncle-slash-adopted-father-slash-father-in-law did wrong. It it would have been totally in character for Claudius to have just straight-up not noticed. The second part of the story that I think we should focus on is right at the beginning, where one of the fates, with her generous hands, bestows upon Nero many years from her own store. And she does this because she has, quote, a fondness for the handsomeness of men. What Seneca has done here is set up a hole for Nero to fill. Somebody needs to bring virility and virtue back to the Principate, and to carry on Augustus' legacy in a way that Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius have failed to do. And here comes Nero, a young man in his prime, favored by the gods, perfectly poised to do just that. The only downside of this medium is that you can't feel me obnoxiously elbowing you in the ribs and just as we're about to close out you say but wait this story is named after pumpkins and this podcast is named after this story which is named after pumpkins so where are my pumpkins and i'm glad you asked because the title of this work is worth looking at again see the fact that cassie steele glossed this title upon mentioning it implies that his audience wouldn't have necessarily understood the joke right away. And even after the gloss, the audience still might not have gotten it. It's not like Colokinth was some sort of bandied-around insult that they would have been familiar with. Scholars hypothesize that this might have been the point. The title is as unexpected and wrong as Claudius's time as emperor. And our common English translation, Pumpkinification, came about centuries after the work itself did, you know, after Europeans learned what a squash was. And honestly, in my opinion, that's the coolest part. The title isn't static. It has an ambiguous meaning that continues to change depending on its context. And if that isn't emblematic of everything we're talking about here, I don't know what is. Thank you guys so much for joining in. If you want to do any more research on anything we talked about today, a full bibliography will be provided on Twitter. Just go to twitter.com slash manmythpumpkin. As always, this podcast was made possible by Dr. Joel Christensen. Thank you again to everyone, and I hope you have an awesome rest of your day.